you're listening today to the word for the first time or you've been listening to it all your life. My prayer for you today is that God will open your spiritual ear because faith comes by hearing and hearing. Right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So I pray that your ears will be open today and that the eyes of your heart will be able to receive the word of God and that you'll be able to receive revelation, knowledge, understanding, and maybe you'll get a rhema word today. That rhema, when that rhema word comes, it's like an aha moment, and um, it just solidifies what you've been going through, and it becomes like a sword, and you're, now you're able to fight. Before you were thinking about it, but now you can take that word, and you know without a doubt that the word of God is true, and now can't nobody tell you nothing, right? So I pray that it penetrates your heart and transform you. I don't know how many of you know, but um, I grew up in Bearsley Terrace, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. I really am. It was a housing project. It had about 16 buildings, and um, we lived in two of the buildings. First, we lived in building 14, then we moved to building 15. On, in building 14, we lived on the eighth floor. There were eight stories to the buildings, 15 of them going down Trumbull Avenue, and we used to have our own little parades going down Trumbull Avenue. <laughs> but um, so when I grew up there, it was kind of like a village raising um, all of us because you could never walk down the street and um, say something negative to an adult without your mother knowing before you got home. And before you got home, you better, you better have figured out how you apologize or you were, number one, going back to apologize, or you were going to get struck for not apologizing. So whenever my mother wanted us, there were six of us, she would call us out of the window. We were on the sixth floor. So if, if by the second time she would call you, the third time she would say something like, Mary, I'm calling you. So the minute you heard that, you knew that you better come running or you were about to experience the wrath of Jean. It was my mother's name. <laughs> this is where I came to learn the phrase, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So the tone of her voice changed everything and I didn't want to be embarrassed, so I made my way, right? Another thing is when I was about 17 or so, um, I was in church and the prophets in our church would tell your personal business. Now, it's not like they would get up and tell your personal business, but they would prophesy. They would walk down the aisle. Sometimes uh, one of them would look so mysterious, and I would kind of cringe down in my seat because I, I didn't want him to call me out, you know, because it seemed like they knew all your business. Well, one day, this pastor, prophet, came down the aisle and um, he said, there's somebody in here, your mother is away, and you're keeping company you shouldn't be keeping. The Lord said, you're playing with fire, and you better stop before you get burnt. All I can say is, Jesus, look over at person, did you tell him? Like, that's the kind of stuff I grew up with. Lo and behold... I was entertaining, you know who, so <laughs> but I got, the, I got the message quick. 
So in the Bible, there are other prophets. We have Elijah, Jonah, Joel, Ezekiel, and they were blazing lightning bolt rebuking prophets and prophesying judgment. Today, I want to talk to you about a prophet by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah lived um, during the time when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. And they went into exile for 70 years. Zechariah was born and reared in Babylon and was among the group that returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel. The temple here now is still not rebuilt. The people are depressed. The morale is low. Zechariah comes on the scene on the heels of Haggai, the prophet, who rebuked the people for living in their plush houses. Under Haggai and Zechariah's preaching, the people were stirred to again take up the rebuilding of the temple. And while Haggai rebuked and admonished, Zechariah encouraged and looked to brighter days. The book of Zechariah contains many visions and a lot of end time symbolism. Haggai rebuked the people for starting and not finishing the rebuilding of the temple. And the people were tired and needed inspiration. But the temple of God remained unfinished. Zechariah never uses embarrassment, guilt, or fear. Maybe he should have told my pastor way back then. Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, you should have read that chapter. Anyway, he does not condemn, rebuke, or scold the people. Instead, paints vivid pictures of the presence of God to strengthen and help the people. Okay, so that, that prophecy did help me, by the way. Words of inspiration flow out of Zechariah's lips. Both of Haggai and Zechariah, they both get the job done. But there was something about Zechariah that helps heal the wounds of the people. He comes, at it, he comes at them in an inspiring way. Look, he says, at the way God will be lifted up when we finish this task. Look how God will be glorified. He points them to look at how it would bless God. He says, like Israel will never be forgotten. God will be exalted from this place. Zechariah's name means God remembers. He who remembers. God gives Zechariah several night visions that address the current issues that would motivate them to complete the task. Zechariah steps in and says, I know you're tired, but it can still be done. He comes to them and says, I believe in you. More importantly, God believes in you. Zechariah is a motivator. And no matter who we're addressing, we want to uplift and not tear down. Whether it's your spouse, and many of us need to learn that art, because in the long run, it's going to benefit all of us. Whether it's your children, a coworker, because remember, your coworker may walk through those doors one day, see you greeting, and the question is, will they say, oh, she goes here, or he goes here, I ain't coming back. Yeah. Or will they say, wow, this is where you go? I'm coming here. I'm going to make this my church home. 
or whether it's the children in the nursery. It's not what we say, it's how we say. And let me tell you, those kids will call you out on every single thing you do or don't do. Or whether it's the lady at McDonald's, right? Just because she works at McDonald's, and even if she gets your order wrong, and boy, oh boy, you can be tempted (laughs) to say, you are getting paid for this. Can't you just get it right? No, she may show up here one day. And what will she think of you? It's not always, like I said, what you say, it's how you say it. Zachariah's style was more compassionate and sympathetic. He begins with this appeal to to the conscious. It says in the third verse in the first book of Zechariah, and maybe we could all read it when we get home, the whole book. (laughs) Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So you see how Zechariah encourages the people. He already knew they were from far from God. He already knew they were messing up. He already knew they were depressed. And he already knew that they were discouraged. But he said, this is how it can happen. This is how we can get this done. First, we got to return to God. And he will bring his presence back to us. In the last part of the book of Zechariah, he speaks of someday the Messiah will come back, literally, and he will reign, and this temple will be a testament to his grace, the temple that they were rebuilding. In chapter 4, I want to read this. It says, in the beginning at the first verse, it says, And the angel who talked with me again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep, I changed my mind. I'm not going to read this whole chapter. I'm going to skip to the fourth verse. And it says, this is one of the visions that Zechariah had, one of those night visions. And now he's speaking it to the people of Israel. He says to them, he says, and I said to the angel who talked with me during my night sleep, what are these, my Lord, speaking of the lamps that he saw in the seven lips that he saw? And the vision that he saw. He said, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Look how God shows up and brings his spirit and shows that he will bring his spirit to help and lift the people of Israel up. Who are you, he said, that they could say, oh, great mountain? Who are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace, grace. Somebody said grace is nothing but something that causes us to mess up, gives us a permission to mess up. No, grace is something that gives us the ability to overcome. 
because it's God's power, his spirit, his presence to do the right thing, to finish the job that he's called you to do. Zechariah knew he was addressing a people who had great obstacles. He declares the grace of God over them. Even though they hardly had any money, we know that their morale was low, and along comes Zechariah's with all these visions. He was letting them know if the temple was going to be rebuilt, it wasn't going to just be done by natural hands. He was letting them know that the Spirit of God was going to help them. He encourages the people and makes them believe that they could level mountains. Wow. I want somebody to preach to me like that because I got some mountains in my life that need to be leveled. So if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, preach to me and tell me that I can level mountains. That's where I believe it came in Mark eleven twenty three 23 and 24. It says, if you will say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the midst of the sea. You and shall not doubt in your heart. You shall have whatsoever you say. So many of us are facing an obstacle that is much like the unfinished temple. Anybody got a dream? that you know God gave you. And it seems like it's been waiting. And, and the enemy is telling you, you should have done this, or you should have done this, or you should have went here, or you should have went to school, or should have, should have, could have, would have. Throw all that away. That's a mountain that you need to level in your life, in your consciousness. Because if God gave it to you, yeah, it's going to be a little hard. Yeah, it's going to seem impossible. But it's not by your might nor by your power. But if you invite the spirit of the Lord to help you, you can complete that vision. So some of us might be panicking because we don't have the resources. Well, here, they needed resources. And God supplied everything that they needed. It says in the eighth verse, and here you see the spirit in the heart of Zechariah. It says, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel, the governor of the provinces, that's who he was, have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Hallelujah. Isn't it wonderful to be able to lay a foundation (laughs) and see the work finish? Thank you. Somebody know where I'm coming from. Thank you, Jesus. He says, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. It's the completion of the work. For for whoever has despised the day of small things, I know you might be in a small small thing and might look like, you know, it's never gonna uh, materialize or come to fruition. It just looks so small right now. But don't despise the day of small beginnings. That's what he said. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So what is the purpose of the plumb line? The purpose of the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand was to keep the walls lined up correctly. Here's the governor. His job was to keep 
the walls lined up. To keep the work true, to keep the integrity of the work. It was such a small thing, but without it, the walls of the temple would not have stood the test of time. So it's the small things along the way that God shows you along the way that you have to be obedient to so that he could get you to the finish line, to the fulfillment of the dream. It's the small things. It's things like being nice to your husband. It's things like uh, uh, doing the small things. If the Holy Spirit says, get up and wash the dishes, get up and wash the dishes. I'm telling you. It's the little things. In, in, in our lives, is if he tells you uh, to apologize for something you know you didn't do, apologize because God is working on the completion of your dream. So if he can trust you with the little things, he can trust you with the greater things. So on the way to greater things, you got to take care of the little things. It pays, it pays to pay attention to the small details. And maybe what you're doing right now does not look like it's significant. And maybe you've been doing that one thing for years. And you are weary and well-doing. I want to encourage you today. You will reap if you faint not. I need to tell somebody do not faint. You will reap if you faint not. That came straight from the throne. Thank you, Jesus. So maybe what you're doing right now, it doesn't seem significant. And for men, I, I'm not a man, but I can imagine how hard that must be. You have the pressure of having to take care of your family you have the pressure of having that status quo. You have all this pressure surrounding you. But let me tell you, if you just take a step back and take care of the small things. I remember when my husband, and I'm going to say this real quick. When we got back together again, he had to go from working at Sikorsky Aircraft to pushing a cart, bagging groceries, <laughs> taking the groceries to the car, for I think it was $2 and something cents an hour. He had to rely upon tips in order to um, have a little bit more than what he made. And you know what we did at that time? We took dented cans out of, the, out of the, uh, the things that he would bring home and I would make it work. I would make those dented cans seem like he was having steak and french fries. That's his pet favorite meal. Because the Lord spoke to me and said, make sure he's fulfilled before he leaves the house. So when he gets outside of the house, he won't be seeking nothing else. He won't be looking for those drugs no more. Hallelujah. And so it's the little things that the Holy Spirit gives you along the way that will bring you to the completion. So... The greatest threat to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not what's happening outside of the church. It's what's happening inside of the church. It's what the people of God are not doing or taking advantage of. Because he's already given us all things that we need. 
for life and godliness. Everything that we need to fulfill the call of God upon our life, he has already given us. So the problem is in the people of God. It's within us, not in the things around us. So we can't blame somebody else if we're not receiving everything that God has for us. But there will come a time when the things of God are very important to us. But that happens along the way. <laughs> when the first, the little things have to become important. Like, it could be simple things like the Holy Spirit is saying, read this one verse every single day. Speak it out of your mouth and let it become a part of you. I'm not asking you to read the whole book. Not 66 books, just one scripture. Speak it out of your mouth. One scripture will become two. Then it'll become a chapter. Then it'll become a book. Because you will desire the sincere milk of the word, and that's how we grow. Sometimes you can't wait. Because some people say, if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. I come from the old school, and really the old school is the 66 books of the Bible. Is the Bible. Because when I got saved, I heard a voice say to me, will you obey my word? And I answered and said, yes, Lord. So the word of God is the most important thing to me. So some people say, if it doesn't feel right, don't do it. I was taught, you do what is right, and the feeling will catch up with you. Right? Because you don't always feel like apologizing. You don't always feel like getting up in the middle of the night and doing whatever the Holy Spirit says. Or you don't always feel like doing the right thing. But it's not by feelings. <laughs> it's by his word. And even the word that God gives you, you line it up with the, with the, with the Bible because the word will always confirm itself. Right? So in Genesis 4-7, we see Cain and Abel. Cain bought the offering that did not please God. Abel did. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will not be if you, if you do what is right, you, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it, meaning you must gain control, self-control over sin. The beginning of the book of Zechariah's night vision is about the rebuilding of the temple, the last part of the book is about how someday the Messiah will come and then come back again, how he will reign, how the temple that they were rebuilding would be a testament to his grace. Today's sermon title is Two Sides of One Prophecy. Say that, Two Sides of One Prophecy. And our key verse comes from Zechariah 9.14. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 2,000 years ago, the disciples and all those standing around got to live in the fulfillment of that prophecy. We can see that in Matthew, the 21st chapter. This is where we get the Palm Sunday. All over the world, Christians celebrate the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem announcing who he was. And while there were those who shouted Hosanna on one side of this prophecy, there were those who were spectators on the other side of the prophecy. A spectator is someone who watches something, especially a sports event. You're a non-participator. So point number one today is spectators watch from the sidelines. On the first Palm Sunday, there were two processions, not just Jesus's. There were people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and then there the, it was the Romans, and they were spectators. Pontius Pilate had his own procession. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor assigned to Judea and Jerusalem. It had become the custom of the governors to live outside of Jerusalem, but it was also their custom to come with their soldiers to Jerusalem for Passover. They were to provide a visible and powerful Roman military presence to prevent any potential uprising. His procession would have come from the west at the head of the column of the Imperial Cavalry. An impressive and lavish procession, specially designed to impress the people with a visual display of imperial power. They had weapons, they had banners, they had golden eagles, they had horses, they had foot soldiers, they had leather armor and helmets, all to be a spectator. Have you ever been to a concert and certain people get to go up to the stage but unfortunately, your seat is all the way in the back. And this is somebody you really would just like to shake their hand, especially if you're a groupie, whatever, whatever, right? <laughs> but your seat is all the way in the back, and all you can do is wish you could be where they are, up on stage. All of a sudden, you feel like a spectator. Have you ever been invited to go on a vacation with your friends? And you wish you could, but... Your bank account tells you you can't. And when they get back, all you can do is sit and listen to them tell you what a great time they had. Spectator. Can you imagine being a security guard at your own family reunion? All you can do is sit around and watch your family have fun. A spectator. I'm sure on that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, there were some soldiers who wanted to lift their hands to pick up a palm, to throw down their jackets, to cheer Jesus on, but dared not because they were on assignment to watch. Some of us have been on assignment for the devil for a long time. And all we've been able to do is sit on the sideline 
and watch other people fulfill their dreams, receive their blessings, receive their peace. And all we can do is say, I wish I could get that. Spectator. Some of you, this could be your last day as a spectator. Your last day. Say, it's my last day as a spectator. On the flip side, somebody say, on the flip side. On the flip side is a phrase. It's an old English expression. So what exactly does it mean, on the flip side? On the flip side is synonymous with the phrase, on the other hand. Basically, it is a way to describe the other side of something, the other side of a situation, the other side of an experience, or the other side of an offer. For instance, listen to these. First, I'll have to work really long hours and be away from my family, but on the flip side, I'll get the opportunity to travel all around the world. Another one, it's snowing outside and I won't be able to drive to work because the roads are not plowed. But on the flip side, I'll be able to stay in bed and get some more sleep. (laughs) On the flip side, it's usually the better side or the better alternative. On the west side of the city, there were very powerful Roman spectators watching for the Jews to make one wrong move On the flip side, on the other side of the city, the Jews were excited about waving their palms in celebration of the king that they had been waiting for for centuries. Point number two, participators rejoice in the hope of salvation. So here we have Jesus' procession. On the other side of the city, down from the Mount of Olives, on the north side came Jesus and his humble procession. It is the humility of Jesus that that shows and displays his great honor. He was on a borrowed donkey, no splendor, no ceremony. He was dressed plain like the people riding on the back of a donkey and followed by his disciples drawn from amongst the peasants and the common people. I can imagine the lepers he had healed at the once and, and the ones that were blind, the blind men who they were probably dancing for Jesus because they knew what Jesus had done. And there were many hundreds and thousands of people who had been impacted by Jesus' ministry. So when he rode into Jerusalem, they didn't hesitate because they had been set free. So if it was in 2023, we would probably say something like, because how many of us have had Jesus do something for us? So if Jesus was riding in here right now, we would say something like, go Jesus, go Jesus, go! And of course, there would have been Lazarus and Mary, hallelujah, and Martha, who was a, was a living symbol of the triumph 
that this procession represented. The palm branch is a, is a symbol of victory, triumph, a symbol of peace, and a symbol of eternal life. It means that salvation has come. The palm tree is one of the most common attributes of victory personified in ancient Rome. So they knew, everybody knew. That's why Pontius Pilate had all of his men there. Jesus and his disciples were greeted with cheers and shouts by crowds along his path. And they cried, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, this procession does not end with a gold crown, but with a crown of thorns. Jesus' triumphal entry ends with a willingness of him to take himself, to take all the pain, to take all the suffering of the world so that together we can celebrate the beginning of a new procession that leads to eternal life. At the end of the day, 2,000 years ago, there were people on both sides of the prophecy with different views of the day. Point number three, at the end of the day, people from all sides are invited to become recipients of his prophecy, of the proclamation that salvation has come. My question to you today, which side of the prophecy are you on? Are you a spectator or are you a participator? Or maybe you're on the outside and you're, you're feeling like, hey, I ain't neither one. I just, I'm just hearing the word for the first time. And I hear about this Jesus who came to take away my sin. Romans 10, 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The people shouted, Hosanna, save us. They were kind of saying, please save us. And it also meant, at last, salvation has come to us. After a long wait, it's finally here. Some of you have been waiting for deliverance for a long time. You've been trying every which way to figure out how to get up out of your misery. I'm here to tell you today, salvation has come to you. Salvation has come to you. Salvation is the Greek word sozo. It takes upon itself all the redemptive acts. It includes physical deliverance. It includes um, healing from sickness. It includes deliverance from demonic oppression. It includes a spiritual deliverance. Well, the scripture says in Matthew 1:21. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. The word salvation is in the Greek is sozo, the verb, and then the noun is soteria. Those are two of the most important words in the whole entire Bible. Stand to your feet, if you will. Salvation is a great inclusive word. It includes all the redemptive acts of Jesus. All the redemptive acts. He didn't leave anything out. 
He came to save us spiritually, mentally. Some of us are turmoil, Term, turmoil, uh, tormented. Oh my gosh, tormented nightly. Instead of having dreams from God, you're getting dreams from the enemy. Salvation covers your deliverance. He has come to set you free from all of that. It encompasses righteousness, which includes freedom from guilt or sin. Justification, the change in a person's condition, moving from a state of sin to a state of righteousness. We are no longer, when you give your heart to the Lord, you are no longer a sinner. You are the righteousness of God. And the devil knows that. So as long as he can get you thinking that you are not who God says you are, he's got access into your life. But some of us need to change our mindset. Today is your day. Today is your day. To change your, the assignment that you've been on for so many years. The word of God comes, salvation has come to set you free. It includes redemption, the death of Jesus, that he paid. He paid the price. He paid the price. The greatest message to the sinner is that you don't have to live and sin anymore because Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price. You don't have to live in misery. You don't have to be uh, uh, bound anymore. You can be set free. Salvation has come. And he has paid. It encompasses grace, which is God's unmerited gift of the divine favor of God and forgiveness. The act of pardoning. In the Bible, the Greek word translated forgiveness literally means to let go. Nobody can demand payment <laughs> for your sins anymore. No devil in hell can demand payment for your sins anymore. All you have to do is receive him. For the scripture says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. We were already condemned. He sent his son into the world that through him we might be saved. So this is what in his prophecy he says tell the people therefore tell the people this is what the Lord Almighty says Zechariah Tell them to return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to them. He said, don't be like your ancestors. They messed up. And there are people that have gone before us that have messed up. But that excuse is not going to hold up. Because the word of God gives us access to deliverance and salvation. So we don't want to be a spectator, being on the sidelines. It's the end of the day, y'all. It's the end of the day. Today, you need to make a decision to come off of the sideline 
because God wants to make your dreams come true. Every dream that he has given you, he will show you. So I'm going to ask the altar workers to come, if you will. Just come quickly. Amen. This is your day. Many of us, we, we don't have to be ashamed of where we are in God. You don't have to be um, guilt-ridden. I can tell you right now that I know there are people in this room who need to come to the altar. Get somebody to pray with you. Maybe they can speak life into that vision and cause your baby to leap again. You need somebody. Maybe impartation will happen for you today. And maybe you're one of those who are struggling in your mind. Don't give the devil all credit. Let's receive what Jesus did. He came and he's coming to you today. So I'm going to ask you to step out of your seat and come because salvation has come to you today. You need deliverance. You need to get up off of the sidelines and come into the presence of God to receive what he has for you today. I say, come in the name of Jesus. Come, come. And if you're standing and you're thinking, should I? Yes. The answer is yes. Come, come. And as we sing this song a little bit, the altar workers will be here. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is here. Your salvation is here today. So those of you that are in your seats, just go ahead and lift your hands and begin to pray. And if you're standing next to someone and you know they need to come, give them a nudge. Encourage them. Give them a nudge. Give them an encouraging word. And let them come. Help them to come. So as we worship, the altar is open for you to come. And, and as we, wow. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. 